This morning, if you're new here, then you probably don't know that we're in the middle of a series, like literally like right in the middle of a series entitled Explore God. And what we are doing in this series is essentially what the name implies. We are, for seven weeks, we are exploring the person and nature of God. And the way we are doing that is by asking seven and asking and answering seven questions concerning the person and nature of God. And so if you haven't been here with us over the past few weeks, we began the series by asking and answering the question, does life have a purpose? Then in week two, we asked and answered the question, is there a God? The question for week three was, why does God allow suffering? This week, the question that we're going to be asking and answering is, is Christianity too narrow? Next week, be sure to come back because the question we're going to be answering then is, is Jesus really God? Then on week six, is the, is the Bible reliable? And then we will conclude, and that'll be the, week seven will be when we do our baptisms, and the question will be, can I know God personally? And so if you haven't been here, make sure to go back and listen to those other ones. And if you have any, if any of the questions that are coming up, you know, in any way uh, engage you or make you think, make sure to come back for those. But this morning, like I said, the question that I'm going to be hoping to answer is, is Christianity too narrow? Now, here's the thing, right? This week as I was preparing and I was thinking about, you know, one of the hard things about a series like this is that there really isn't a, a particular passage that you can go to. You can go essentially anywhere in the Bible to try to answer these questions. But, but the moment I read this question, not just this week, but weeks ago, when this, this question came across my radar, there was one passage that immediately came to mind. And I'm like, I know exactly what passage I'm going to preach on. But, but here's the problem with the passage that I'm going to preach on. For those of you who've been coming to Tri-Village regularly, it's a passage that we looked at about two and a half months ago, maybe three months ago now, when we were in the Upside Down Kingdom uh, Sermon on the Mount series. And so that passage was a passage that I had already preached on, you know, a little over two months ago. And I'm like, man, I don't know if I want to go back and preach on that passage again because I've already preached on that passage. But the more I looked for other passages, the Lord just kept driving me back to the same passage again and again and again. And then as, I, as, as he did that, he kind of calmed me down a little bit by revealing two things to me. The first thing he revealed to me is that you guys forget everything I say, <laughs> Right? So, so I'm making the assumption that you remember anything that I say. And that, that's a major assumption, right? And you know, you know how I know you don't remember what I say? Because I don't even remember what I say. <laughs> I went back and listened to this message, and I was being encouraged all over again. I'm like, dang, I didn't know that. What the heck? <laughs> Jesus did that? And I was the one that spent hours writing the thing, <laughs> right? So the first reason is because you guys have terrible memory. And so I can repeat it, and you won't even know that I'm repeating it. But you know what the second reason, and this is something the Lord convicted me of, that the only people who could have potentially heard this message are the insiders. It's the people who've been here for a long time, right? But this series isn't for the insiders. This, this series is for the people who are coming here for the first time, people who are exploring Christianity for the first time. And so the odds of you hearing the first sermon are slim to none. And so since this sermon is for you and not for the insiders, that's why I feel that I got to preach this passage, Okay. And so the passage that I'm making reference to and the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, it comes from Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. And what Jesus is doing here in Matthew chapter 7, 13 through 14, is he's talking to us about two gates, two roads, and two ends. And so what we're going to do today as we look at this passage is what, what Jesus is going to argue is that the narrow gate, the narrow road, and the narrow end is Christianity. And every other world religion, every other world review, every other world view is the broad, narrow, the broad gate, the broad road, the broad end, okay? So, so even though he doesn't really make it implicit, I just need you to know, when Jesus talks about the narrow gate, the narrow path, and the narrow end, he's talking about Christianity. 
And everything that's on the broad road is every other world religion and worldview, okay? So this is the passage that we are going to use in order to answer the question, is Christianity too narrow? And part of the reason is because he brings up the concept of narrow like two, three times in the passage. So it makes sense that this would be the passage when he brings up that actual word multiple times in the passage. So here's what we're going to do. What we're going to do is we, I'm going to read through this passage. And well, let me read it first, and then, and then I'll, I'll give you the outline. Here, here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, 13 through 14. He says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. It's the word of the Lord. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, we, we come before you right now. And God, as I seek to answer this question and explain this passage, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be honoring and glorifying to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, that from the moment I say amen, it would not be me speaking, but it would be you speaking through me. Jesus, there are people here who are still on the broad road. There are people here who have yet to believe in you, and I pray that today would be the day that they take that step to the narrow gate, the narrow road, and the narrow destination. Do that through us, we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right, so like I said, this is the passage that we're looking at, and what we're going to do is we're going to answer this question by looking at this passage under three headings, okay? So we're, and essentially what these three headings do, these three parts, is they are each a part of a journey. So we're going to start the journey by looking at the two gates, then we're going to go to the middle part of the journey by looking at the two roads, and then we're going to end the journey by looking at the two ends. So we're going to look at two gates, two roads, and two ends. All right, so let's begin this morning by looking at the two gates. Look what Jesus says about the two gates. He says there's two of them, and he says, for wide is the gate, second half of verse 13, for wide is the gate, and then in verse 14 he says, but small is the gate. So Jesus talks to us about a wide gate and a narrow gate. There are two types of gates. Now, before I talk to you about the differences between these two types of gates, let me talk to you a little bit about the word narrow. And here's why I want to define the word narrow. Because in our culture, the word narrow is the closest thing to a swear word that you can say. Right? In our culture, swear words aren't swear words. You can say whatever you want. But if you call someone narrow or narrow-minded, if you go to downtown Chicago and find a millennial wearing a beanie of some sort... And you say to them, hey, you are narrow-minded, you might as well be spitting in their face. It is the ultimate diss. It is the ultimate swear word. Narrow is a terrible thing in our culture. Why? Because when you think of narrow, the world's definition of narrow is someone who's narrow, someone who's narrow-minded is someone who's judgmental, someone who is a bigot, someone who feels superior to those who disagree with them. That's usually what you think of when you think of narrow. The reason why I want to define the word narrow here right at the beginning is because the biblical definition for narrow is very different from the world's definition of narrow. When Jesus here says narrow, in the original language, the word narrow is exactly what a lot of us would think it would mean. It means to to be pressed in on. It means to try to go through an area where you are being squeezed and confined. That's what narrow means. It means to be in a very tight space. That's what the word narrow actually means. So it's not the world's definition that we're looking at this morning. It's the Lord's definition that we're looking at this morning. Now, here's the thing about gates, right? Like In our culture, we don't really 
see that many gates. And if we do, they, they all look so different that it's hard for us to picture what type of gate Jesus is describing. And so in my study of this passage, one of the commentators that I looked at, one of the scholars, he, he gave examples, two examples of what the type of gate Jesus wants you to imagine. He said the first type of gate that, you should, that should come to mind when you think of a narrow gate is a turnstile at a subway station. Right? So if you've ever gotten on the L or you've ever gotten on the subway in Chicago, and one of the things that you know is that there's a turnstile. So you buy a ticket, you put the stub in the, in, in the little slot, and then there's a little metal bar. You push the metal bar, and another one pops up behind you. And the thing about that is that I don't know if you've ever tried to get more than one person through that, but it's really awkward. A lot of awkward body contact, right, because you're not supposed to go two at a time. It's only meant to be one person at a time. What's also interesting about that turnstile, and I'll come back to this later on, is that once you get through, you actually can't go back. It's, it's, it's stuck. It doesn't let you go the other way. There's only one way in. And we'll come back to that concept later on. Another example of a modern day gate, another modern example of the type of gate that Jesus is describing is uh, an airport gate, right? Ever since 9-11, it's, it's so hard to get through a gate. Right? And, and you got to take uh, your shoes off and uh, your belt off and your pants off and your underwear off. And by the time you get to the other side, you're naked. It's the, the Garden of Eden all over again when you get to the other side of that thing, right? And, and only one person can go. You can't just say, hey, family, let's all go through the scanner at the same time. They don't let you, don't, they don't let you do that. And, and, and when you look like me, you get random checks. <laughs> See, everywhere else, I'm either black or Hispanic. In the airport, I'm, I'm Muslim or Indian. So they're like, oh, hey, 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 hey. That dude right there, yeah, hey, hey, random. Yeah, come on. <laughs> just random, sir. Okay? So, so, so what you see is that those are the type of gates he's talking about. There, there are certain gates that come to mind when Jesus talks to us about a narrow gate. We don't really see a lot of gates, but those are the two types of gates that, that I think we need to have in mind if we are going to uh, really understand what Jesus is talking to us about. Okay? So here's what this means. If one gate is narrow, and the word narrow means to be pressed in on, uh, to have nowhere, literally just, in, just so tight that only you can get through. If one gate is narrow and one gate is wide, then one of the differences between these two roads, or I'm sorry, these two gates, is that one allows no baggage and one allows all the baggage that you want. That's the difference. Actually, in Jerusalem, someone mentioned this to me on the way out, one of our volunteers. In Jerusalem, there was this one gate that was the, it was called the narrow gate. And literally, the only way you can get through it is if you took all the, the baggage off your camel. It was the only way to get through. It was so narrow that you couldn't have a whole bunch of stuff. You could only get through if you took everything off your camel and it was just you and your camel. A narrow gate. So if it's narrow, that means that there's no baggage. And the thing is, when we, when we go through gates, we usually take baggage with us. We have backpacks. We have carry-ons, right? We have suitcases. And what Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. In order to get through this gate, the, the, the biggest, there's more than one difference, but one of the biggest differences is the fact that there is no baggage on this trip. To get through this gate, you got to let everything behind. You got to leave everything behind. Now, when you think of baggage, you think of things, like I said, carry-ons and backpacks and stuff like that. But here's what Jesus means by baggage. Jesus says that in order for you to get through this gate, the type of things you have to give up are not suitcases. You got to give up your sin. You got to give up your self-righteousness. You know what also thing you got to give up? You got to give up your relationships to an extent. Because Jesus says, you can't love your family more than you love me. And so here's the thing. You can't get in through this gate because someone brought you with them. Okay? So follow with me here. The, the only way you get through this gate is if you walk through the gate. I don't care if your mom walked through the gate. I don't care if your dad walked through the gate. 
I don't care if your cousin walked through the gate. Christianity is not inherited. You have to walk through the gate. Only you. And you can't take anybody else with you. And you know another thing you got to give up? And here's what I mean by sin. Someone brought this up, and I think it was a good point. What I mean by giving up sin is not that you never struggle with sin again, but it's that you're no longer finding your identity and your value in those things. Jesus is now where you find it. Okay? So I don't want to make it seem like you become perfect. The struggle is still there, but Jesus is now the Lord of your life, not that sin or that behavior. Okay? But you know another thing you got to give up? You also got to give up your idolatry. Here's what I mean by idolatry. You might be sitting here today, and because you don't believe in God or you're kind of an agnostic, you're like, well, I don't worship anything because I don't worship God. I'm not a worshiper. Well, the reality is, according to Romans chapter 1, every single one of us is a worshiper. God has created us. God has manufactured us to worship things. And so what that means is, if you're not worshiping the creator, you're worshiping creation. Every person worships something. So if your ultimate identity and value and security don't come from God, then you better believe they're coming from somewhere. It might be your career. It might be your education. It might be your singleness. It might be your retirement. It might be your kids. It might be your spouse. It might be your past. It might be your success. But every single person is worshiping something. Every single person has a religion, even though they might not think they have a religion. And in order for you to get through this gate, you got to let go. If you want the real God, you got to let go of the false ones. It's the only way to get through. You got to let go of the false ones. Okay? So there's no baggage on this, in this gate, through this gate. There's no baggage. So if you love your baggage, if you like your baggage, that's you. That's cool. But you can't get through this gate. You can't get through this gate. Okay? You know another difference between the two gates and this is something that kind of uh, uh, caught me off guard as I was studying this passage, is that there's really no bystanders, if you think about it. There's no such thing as a bystander if what Jesus is saying is true. So, so here's what you think you might be doing. You think that you're sitting here this morning, and you're kind of looking at the two gates, like as two options. Do I go through that gate, or do I go through this gate? But you think you maybe haven't chosen a gate. But what I'm here to tell you is that you have chosen a gate. And you're like, well, I haven't made a decision. Well, a non-decision is a decision. If you haven't chosen to be on the narrow gate, you better believe you're on the broad one. And if you don't know, now you know. As my man Biggie would say. Okay? If you haven't chosen, you've chosen. If you haven't made a decision, you've made a decision. If you're not on the narrow road, best believe you're on the broad road. There's no such thing as a bystander. Every person here is on one road, or the other road. That's why Jesus begins the passage with a command. You know, in English, you don't really feel the force of it. But in the original language, the word enter is a command. He's not suggesting it. He's not saying, hey, if you're, if you're, if you're not busy, you should consider entering. No, no, it's a command. He's like, enter through the narrow gate. It's an imperative. Not only is it imperative, but it's in the aorist tense. Why is the aorist tense important? Because the aorist tense is a one-time past decision that you've made and you never make again. So you don't go in and out. You enter and then you never enter. You never have to do it again because you've already entered. It's not a command. I mean, it's not a suggestion. It's a command. He is demanding a very specific action. And the command is to enter the gate. He doesn't say ponder the gate. He doesn't say gaze at the gate. He doesn't say stand close to the gate. He doesn't say polish the gate. He says enter through the gate. Enter the gate. You got to go in. Here's what a lot of us do, though. What a lot of us do is we don't really want 
God all up in our business. So we do our own thing for a long time. And then when we start to suffer, you know what we do? We get really close to the gate. Come over by the gate, set up camp. You know, things are kind of tough right now financially with my kids, with my marriage. I'm going to just stay here at the gate. I'm really close. I'm going to come to church. I'm read the Bible a little bit, listen to Christian radio. And I'm going to just stay here next to the gate because things are tough. And you know what happens? The moment things get better, you get away from the gate again. Jesus doesn't want admirers. He doesn't want squatters. He wants followers. Enter the gate, Jesus says. He doesn't suggest it. He commands it. We need to enter the gate. You have to go into the gate. It's the only way it works. There's a, there's a few quotes here that I want to read to you that I believe summarize this whole concept of entering the gate. You can put the first one up by Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon is this guy, who died, a preacher who died a long time ago, considered by many the best preacher of all time, the, the prince of preachers he's called. And he says this. He says, you and your sins, listen to this, you and your sins must separate or you and your God will never come together. Let me read that again because somebody missed that. You and your sins must separate or you and your God will never come together. No one, no one sin may you keep. They must all be given up. They must be brought out like the Canaanite kings from the cave and be hanged up in the sun. Either you separate from your sin or you'll forever be separated from your Savior. That's what he's saying. Okay? But here's the other thing. Before we put the next quote up, I want to set it up a little bit. One of the guys that I enjoy reading is this guy named Jared Wilson, Jared C. Wilson. Gospel-centered dude, great theology. He's a pastor in, in, in the New England area. And he, has, he, he had this article that I came across this week that just really encouraged me. And he said that one of the things that we do when we look at passages like this is we try to, like, dumb it down a little bit. We try to lower the standards a little bit. We don't, we don't really like how aggressive Jesus is being. And so we, kinda, we try to be his PR, PR men. His PR guys, like, ah, you know, Jesus, I don't know if you're, this is a little bit rough, man. Not a good look for you. And so what we try to do is we try to lower the standard. We try to smooth out the, the rough edges of the message. But look what he says happens when you do that. If you could put that quote up. He says, listen to this, just as in the days of his earthly ministry, so Jesus' earthly ministry, the truth claims of Christ and his church, listen to this, continue to both resonate and repel. So, so think about it. When Jesus preached, anytime you see Jesus preach in the Bible, no one ever went to lunch afterwards and said, hey, what did he talk about again? What was that about? Pastor Brett says, I don't remember, forget it. No, no, no. When Jesus preached, either you worshiped him or you wanted to kill him. There was no in between. You worshiped him or you wanted to kill him. Okay. And so I, I never will I feel, think that my, my preaching is ever at the level of Jesus is, but that's always my hope. My hope is that you never get to lunch and say, what did Will talk about? I either want you to say, man, I got to go hear more about this Jesus guy or I want nothing to do with that. And if you don't feel that way, then I haven't preached the Bible because the gospel is offensive. It should be the only thing that's offensive, but it's offensive. He says that the gospel resonates with something and repels others. And then he says, look at this. He says, of course, it's the repulsion that many evangelicals today are concerned about. Many churches do this. Some of them are concerned enough about it that they seek to soften some of the harder edges of the Christian faith 
to make it more appealing. But listen to what happens. This is crazy. He says, and what we discover in adultering the message of Jesus is that we may soften people's objections to him, but we also temper their enthusiasm. The safe Jesus of modern evangelicalism is not offensive, but neither is he compelling. So if Jesus doesn't offend you, then he won't compel you. This is what it is. He's either the rock of ages or he's a stumbling block, but you have to react to him. You have to. And when we try to soften the edges, he's actually not that compelling anymore. He just becomes like every other world, world leader and religious leader that's ever existed. Then he says, no, we must embrace the real Jesus, Jesus as he was and is, with all his cross-talking demands and soul-barring truths. Then he says, and when we do so, we will discover that for all the animosity the real Jesus stirs up, there are also a good many affections for him stirred up as well. And so listen, I can't give you a false Jesus. If you're going to be offended by him, I'd rather you be offended by the real one. I'd rather you leave here and say, hey, at least I know what Jesus is about. I might not follow it, but at least I know. Okay? That's why one scholar that I came across this week said something that really convicted me. He says, look, because we live in America, you can create any religion you want. Literally, tomorrow morning, you can get up and create your own religion. And it can be whatever you want. It could be about tolerance and acceptance and low standards. It could be about whatever you want. But here's what he said. Here's what he says. He said, create whatever religion you want, but don't you dare call it Christianity. He says, because that name is already taken. Create whatever you want, but don't you dare call it Christianity. Because Jesus defines what Christianity is. Not you and not me. So, the first thing I want you to see as we go back to the outline is that the beginning of the journey begins with two gates. Which gate are you going to choose? Are you going to choose the narrow gate or are you going to choose the wide gate? Then, the, then we go to the middle part of the journey because he goes from two gates to two roads. And look what Jesus says here about the two roads. He says to us, he says, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But then he says, small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. So Jesus says that the second part of the journey is the road that you are on. And one of the differences between the two roads is the size. That in one road you have few, and on the other road you have many. And so the question we have to ask is, why is there such a discrepancy? Why are there so many more people on the broad road and such little people on the narrow road? Well, there's a few reasons. The first reason is because of what we brought up in the, the baggage that we brought up in the first point. Part of the reason why there's so little people on the narrow road is because people love their baggage. They love their sin. They love their gods. They love their, 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 their career or whatever more than Jesus. So they don't want to give that up. Part of the reason is they just don't want to give that up. Actually, uh, C.S. Lewis, in, in, in one of his books, um, he talks about, he, he, there's this, I can't think of the name for some reason, but it's, it's, it, he's, he's, he does an allegory about going to, uh, to heaven. He says that there's one guy who really wants to get into heaven, but he has this sin on his shoulder. It's sexual sin. It's lust. And so the angel shows up and says, hey, let me take that from you. Because he's complaining about how much he hates it. I hate this thing. I hate this thing. I hate this thing. And the angel's like, well, let me take it. No, 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 no. Don't take it. But if you don't want it, let me kill it. No, 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 no. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's calm down now, angel. 
I don't want to lose my, my sexual sin. That's how a lot of us are. We, we don't want to go over there because, yeah, we might not like the thing, but there's a reason why we chose it. There's a reason why we find our identity and our worth in it. I don't want to give that up. Why would I do that? So part of the reason why there's so many people on, on the, the broad road and so little people on the narrow road is because people love their baggage. They love their carry-ons. They love their trinkets, okay? But you know another reason why? It's because of the fact that it's, 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 it's our biology. It's how, it's how we are born. Literally, it's how we are born. Here's why there's so many people on the broad road. Because according to Scripture, all it takes for you to be on the broad road is for you to be born. From the moment you're born, you are on the broad road. To be on the broad road, all you have to do is be born. To be on the narrow road, you have to be born again. That's what we see. You have to be born again. So it's easy to be born. You were born. And so, but to be born again requires God. See, to be born is all about you, but to be born again is all about God. Okay? So, so if you're looking at this and you're like, wait, wait, wait. So if just the fact that I'm born makes me on the broad road, right? Which is why I said earlier that there's no such thing as a bystander because you're either on this road or on that road, right? Then, then what happens is when you understand that, then when you start to realize is the reason why I'm on this broad road is because it's all about self. The broad road is the big road because it's all about you. It's all about self-sufficiency and self-discovery and self-esteem and self-improvement. It's all about the self. And so it's easy to be on the broad road because it's all about you. But to go from the broad road to the narrow road, it's got to go from you to it being about Jesus. That's a, that's a big jump for a lot of us. You don't want to give that up yet. Okay? So, so one, of the, one of the differences then is when you, when you look at it is that this one comes naturally it, it, because we literally we are born into it. But you know the other difference between the two roads is I would argue that, and this is probably the biggest difference, is that the two roads have different sets of beliefs. Like you literally believe different things. Okay? Now, one of the things that you might say, like if you're not a religious type, you've never really been at church, maybe you're an atheist or an agnostic, and you don't really believe in religion, you're like, well, I don't, I don't have any beliefs. I don't believe in anything. Here's what you don't know. You have beliefs. You have a theology. And I would argue, and I'll show you why in a second, that your worldview takes more faith than my worldview. This, 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 this broad road that so many people are walking on there are certain beliefs, there are certain statements that are made, and because nobody is thinking critically, they just take them on wholesale at the surface level. Like, yep, that's true, because Lady Gaga tweeted about it. <laughs> Listen, if you're getting your theology from Lady Gaga or from Drake, there's a problem. <laughs> or a politician, CNN or Fox News, there's a problem. Okay? Major problem. And so what I want to do over the next few minutes is I want to give you some of the statements, some of the beliefs that are taught in the world we live in that keep you on the broad road. And what I want to do as I go through these is I want to uh, uh, state them, and then I want to rebuke them, and I want to uh, uh, retort. But I, I want to do it not to embarrass anybody, but just to show you that if you think critically, a lot of these statements don't hold up, okay? Here's what the first one is. And I, and I label it as religious relativism. That's essentially what the Western culture believes, religious relativism. Maybe you're here and you agree with all of these. You've said all of these. 
or maybe there's two of them, but whichever one it is, I want to help you see why they're really not as uh, logical as they look on the surface. Okay, the first one is this, ready? I believe that all roads lead to God. That's, that's the Oprah Winfrey theology. Okay? Here's the problem with that concept and that idea. The problem with that is geography. And here's what I mean. If, 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 if I ask you for directions to California and you give me directions to New York, I'm not going to end up in California. Because one is west and one is east. That's how roads work. Right? If you give me directions to that place, I'm not going to end up at that place. And, and for some reason, it makes sense to us in any other context, but when it comes to spiritual things, we're like, no, nah, it's different here. <laughs> it's not. Okay? And some of you have heard me use this in the past, but it's like if we, if we all went down to downtown Chicago and we all had a profile for, for God, we're looking for God. And my profile, God is a 6'7 black man. And in your profile, God is a 5'8 Asian man. We're not going to find and look for the same person. We're going to end up at totally different people. Why? Because the profile is different. For, that makes sense in every other setting, but for some reason, spiritually, we're just, nah, nah that doesn't work here. You know, another illustration, and, and I didn't bring this up the last time I preached in this passage, but I'm going to bring it up here. One of the, one of the arguments that, that agnostics and atheists use, people who are religious relativists, uh, uh, what they do is they look back, and here's what, they use the illustration of, of, of the elephant. I remember being in philosophy class back when I was in college, and they would bring up the elephant. They said that God is like a really, really big elephant, and every worldview is like a blind man touching a different part of the elephant. And so Muslims are maybe by the tail, and Christians are by the leg, and Jews are by the tusk, and, and uh, Mormons are by, you know, the, the, the trunk, and Buddhists are, I don't know, some other place. And so what they say is that the reason why we say, oh, no, God is this or God is that is because since we're blind, we can't see. All we can do is describe the part of God that we have in front of us. But what they argue, is, and philosophers think this argument is great, is, oh, we all are describing the same God. We're just touching a different part of the elephant's body. But you know what's crazy, though, right? That, that what they're inferring is that everyone is blind, and no one can tell that they're only touching one part of the elephant. So it infers that we should all be humble. But think about what they're saying. What they're saying is that the only person who can see and the only person who's far enough to see the whole elephant is dumb. Right? That's what you're saying. If, 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 if I can zoom out and I'm the only one that sees the elephant, then what you're saying is you're superior to all the other people. You're blind, but I can see. So your whole argument falls apart because you're describing blind humility. And yet the only one who's then what you are actually doing is you have prideful sight because you're the only one that can see the elephant. Okay. Another one is this. There is no such thing as absolute truth. No such thing as absolute truth. Here's, here's what this argument says. An absolute truth is something that's true absolutely. It's something that's true all the time, no matter what. People say there's no such thing as absolute truth. All truth is truth. There's no such thing as absolute truth. Well, here's the problem with that. That statement is an absolute truth statement. So you're using an absolute truth statement to argue against absolute truths. Because by saying there's no such thing as absolute truth, you're saying there's something that's true all the time, no matter what. So you're using absolute truth to argue against absolute truth. That doesn't make any sense. But no one tells you that. Sounds good on Twitter. But we don't think critically anymore in our culture. Most of us don't even read articles anymore. 
We, we scroll through Facebook and just read the headline and act like we know what, we, what it is because we read the headline. Or we, or we listen to our, our favorite political person and we just take their word on whatever it is. We don't think critically anymore. So, of course, we think that makes sense because no one's telling you to think critically about it. Once you think critically about it, you see that your argument falls apart because you're using absolute truth to argue for absolute truth, against absolute truth. Okay? And what's happened, I don't know why this has happened, but we, we've started to be humble about the wrong things. We have started to be modest about the wrong things. And, and so G.K. Chesterton, who's a theologian who died uh, several years ago, he, he takes this quote, and this is, he, this is back in the day, but you would, you would almost think that he wrote it today because of how, how well-timed this is. Look what he says. He says, modesty has moved from the organ or the area of ambition. Modesty has settled upon the organ or region of conviction. So here's what he says. Modesty should only be present when it comes to ambition. That's how it should be. But what's, ha- what's happened is instead of modesty being related to our ambition, we have shifted modesty from our ambition to our convictions. He says, where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert himself. And the part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt, the divine reason. So we're modest about the wrong thing now. We should be modest about us and confident about God and his truth. And now we flipped it. We're confident about us and we're modest and humble when it comes to We, we don't know if he's, that's true or not. Let's, let's not get crazy now. Let's go to the next one. Uh, no, not the next quote, the next, the next list. Thank you. So here's the other one. You should enforce your beliefs on others. That's a big one, right? You've heard that. Well, you, who are you to force your beliefs on me? You have no right to force your worldview on someone else. Essentially, what they're getting after is evangelism. They're saying that evangelism is wrong. You should not evangelize. You should not proselytize. You know what the problem with that is, though? The moment you make that statement, you are forcing your worldview on the person you're saying that to. You are evangelizing against evangelization. You shouldn't share your faith, and yet I'm sharing my faith by telling you that you shouldn't share your, your faith. You should never share your worldview. You should never force on anyone, and yet that's exactly what I'm doing by telling you not to force your worldview on someone. Because in my worldview, you shouldn't share, even though that's exactly what I'm doing. Even though I take every opportunity I get on social media to tell you that we shouldn't proselytize and evangelize, and I'm doing the same exact thing. Okay? Here's another one. This one, was, this one wasn't here the last time I preached on it. Jesus, this is what a lot of people say. I don't get why Christians are so exclusive because Jesus came to be inclusive. I don't like Christianity. I just like Jesus. I don't want to go to church. I, want, I don't want his bride. I don't want his body. I want, I want him because he was inclusive. Uh, I don't know what part of the Bible you're reading. Because your definition of inclusivism might be totally off. Because Jesus, yeah, he was inclusive to a, to a point. But it's not the definition you think. And so this week I came across a, a quote um, from this guy, his name, uh, Miroslav Volf. And he is alive right now. He's 60-something years old. And he's a Protestant professor at Yale University. He's, he's from Croatia. Brilliant man. 
And he wrote a book on the relationship between exclusivism and inclusivism. And look what he says, he says in his book about Jesus. You can put that quote up. He says, Jesus, listen to this, was no prophet of inclusion. He wasn't. For whom the chief virtue was acceptance and the cardinal vice or sin was intolerance. That's what people say. People say, Jesus was a prophet of inclusion. And he, the, the chief virtue was accepting everyone. And the chief sin was intolerance. That's what people say about Jesus. Here's the problem. Look what he says. Jesus was a bringer of grace who not only scandalously included anyone in the fellowship, listen to this, but made the intolerant demand of repentance and the condescending offer of forgiveness. So on the surface, you see Jesus with pimps and prostitutes and tax collectors. He's at the parties and stuff. You're like, oh, this guy accepts everybody. But then when you actually understand the message, he's calling you to repentance and telling you that you need forgiveness. That's really offensive. Because when someone has to repent and someone needs forgiveness, it means they're a sinner. And our culture isn't willing to admit that. So they only accept part of what Jesus came to do and totally ignore the other part. So here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, here's why Jesus is both inclusive and exclusive. Because Jesus says, look, everyone is welcomed, but when you show up, everything is required. Let me say that again. Everyone is welcomed, but when you show up, everything is required. So on the one hand, he's inclusive because everyone's welcomed. But on the other hand, he's exclusive because everything is required. That's what we see. Okay? And then finally, the, the fifth and last one that I want to conclude with is this. Claiming that you have the truth is bigotry. Right? Christians get accused of this all the time. Oh, you know what? You know what the problem is? You're a bigot. You think you're better than me. You're judging me. You act like you have the truth and you're a bigot. But here's the thing. I, I looked up the definition of the word bigot. And you can actually be a bigot whether you have the truth or a lie. The, the, being a bigot isn't based on who has the truth or who doesn't have the truth. It's not a position. Bigotry is not a position. It's a disposition. Bigotry is when you feel superior to someone who disagrees with you. Bigotry is when you despise those who are not on the same team as you. That's what bigotry is. Bigotry is motivated by pride. But listen, just because a Christian claims to have the truth doesn't mean they're being bigots. Because you can actually be a bigot and be believing a lie. And actually, if you call someone a bigot, you're probably being a bigot. Okay? If I got up here and said, hey, two plus two is four... You don't say, oh, man, what a bigot. Who says that? How dare you say two plus two is four? You would never say that because that's the truth. If we believe we have the truth and I tell you, hey, this is the truth, that's not bigotry. That's me wanting to have you know the truth. Okay? But here's what I want you to know. Some of you, maybe the reason why you walked away from Christianity is because someone was a bigot to you. It's because someone felt superior to you. It's because someone judged you. If you left because someone was a bigot, I want to apologize on behalf of that person. You know why? Because what they did was not Christian. And what they did was sinful. And so if the reason why you left Christianity is because of bigotry, I'm sorry. I apologize on behalf of that individual. Okay? But here's what's funny, though. My wife and I were talking about this yesterday. See, I, I didn't grow up in church, and I came to know Jesus during my senior year of high school, freshman year of college. And my wife grew up in church. And so we were talking about, you know, what was it like being a Christian in a, in a public high school? 
And she said, you know, I always knew that Christianity was narrow because you had to go through Jesus. He's the only way to the Father. She said, but what I did without even noticing is I made Christianity more narrow than what it should have been. Okay? And here's what, what I mean. She's like, I, I, I added things to Christianity that weren't ever there. The only thing that makes Christianity narrow is that you have to believe in one Savior. But what I did is I added rules and conditions and things that I thought were Christianity and made something that was narrow that much more narrow. So if you're going to come to Jesus, I don't think you got to believe in Jesus, but you can't smoke and you can't dance and you can't swear and you can't uh, uh, listen to certain songs. You can't watch rated R movies. So essentially, you can't go to the, the, the youth retreat that we saw in the video. <laughs> right? <laughs> they were jamming, dude. They were jamming. It was a party, man. Right? You can't go because that's what Christianity is. I heard, I heard a joke once where, where some Christians, because the Bible says nothing about dancing, right? But there's some Christians who are so OCD about dancing that dancing is a sin. I heard someone say it this way. Usually what people say is, hey, you shouldn't dance because it leads to sex. That's what the religious people say, right? But I heard one person say, some people are so OCD and so religious about dancing that they say the opposite. They're like, hey, you shouldn't have sex because it might lead to dancing. <laughs> that's how ridiculous we are. And we make something that's already narrow that much more narrow because instead of making it just about beliefs, we add behavior to it. Here's what a lot of churches do. A lot of churches say, hey, if, if you behave how we behave and you believe what we believe, then we'll let you belong. And here, what we're telling you at Tri Village is, no, 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 no. Regardless of where you are, you belong. And God will be the one that determines when you believe and when you behave. Christianity is narrow, but we're not going to make it more narrow than what it is. So, those are the statements that people say. That's why there's so many more people on the broad road than there are on the narrow road. So let's go back to the three points, right? We began this sermon by looking at the beginning of the journey, which is the two gates. Then we, we went to the middle of the journey, which is the two roads. And now I want to conclude by looking at the two ends or the two destinations. Look what Jesus says here. He says, <clears throat> for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to what? Oh, okay. So uh, I'm, I'm preaching by myself up here. Um, uh, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to what? Destruction. Destruction. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to what? Life. Life. So Jesus says that the final distinction between these two gates and roads is the destination. It's probably the greatest distinction, the biggest distinction. Everything else seems little compared to this last part because it's all about where you end up. Jesus says that depending on which road you take, you either end up in destruction or you end up with life. So this is an incredibly important decision that we're making. So here's the question that we got to answer then. If one road leads to destruction and one road leads to life, then what type of person do you have to be to move from the road that leads to destruction to the road that leads to uh, uh, life? Well, what I would argue is that there's a certain type of person that you have to be in order to move from this road to this road. Now, you've been sitting here, maybe, maybe you're sitting here and you're considering this whole Christianity thing, and you're like, okay, here he comes, here it comes. And you, say, you know, I thought this church was different from other churches, but he's about to give me the rules now. He's about to give me the steps now. He's about to say that the certain, the, the type of person I have to be to go from the broad road to the narrow road is I have to be a religious person. I have to be a good person. And here come the, the rules and the, re the, the, the regulations and the requirements. Here it comes. I knew it was coming. Here it comes. 
Here's why that's not going to happen. Here's why it's not going to happen. Because you might be thinking, oh, okay, in order, I'm a bad person, and in order to get on the narrow road, i got to be a good person. Here's why that's not the case. The reason why it's not bad people over here and good people over here is because there's no such thing as good people. So it can't be you being good. It can't be you following rules. It can't be you meeting up to requirements because there's no such thing as a good person. If it was good people that got on the narrow road, then the narrow road would be very empty. Because there's no good people. And so if it's not good behavior, if it's not moralism, if it's not religion that gets you on the narrow road, then what gets you on the narrow road? Do you want to know what gets you on the narrow road? The people who are on the narrow road are not the people who are trying to be good. It's the people who can admit that they're bad. The people who are on the I will, brother. The people who are on the, the, people who are on the narrow road are not the people who think they are good. It's the people who can admit that they're bad. Okay? The reason why the narrow road leads to life is not because those people are good. Actually, those people aren't the best people. Those people are admitting they're the worst people. That's why it never shocks me when I, when I meet a non-Christian that's a better person than Christians. There's non-Christians that are way more generous, way more loving, way more compassionate. But that makes sense because they're trying to save themselves, so you got to be. But but, but you don't got to save yourself. It's okay for me to admit I'm a nobody because my Savior was a somebody. It's okay for me to admit I'm imperfect because my Savior was perfect. So I'm not shocked when I see a non-Christian that's better than a Christian. That should actually be the case because to get on this road, you got to admit that you suck. That's what we see. And so the people on this road aren't the best people. It's the worst people. What gets you from here to here is that you've, tri- you've given up on trying to be good and you finally admitted that you're bad. And when you admit that you're bad and you admit you're a sinner, then and only then can you embrace a savior. Listen, the reason why, listen this, the reason why these people, even though they're not good people, even though they deserve death, the reason why they, d- they get life instead of death is because someone else took their death in their place. The reason why they get the spaciousness of, of heaven is because someone stepped into the narrowness of earth for them. Who was that person? That person was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the difference between the broad road and the narrow road. On the broad road, on the broad road, the reason why you don't have Jesus is because you don't need Jesus. On the broad road, you're trying to save yourself. So since I'm trying to save myself, I don't need Jesus. But when I go to the narrow road, I can't save myself. Jesus has to do it for me. That's what we see, guys. Man, when, when, when you get that, when you understand that, that, that Jesus stepped into our narrowness so that by faith in him, we might step into his spaciousness. When, when you understand that, that Jesus lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death that we should have died. And now the ultimate insider became an outsider so that the outsiders can become insiders. Come on. That's what we see. That's what we have in Jesus. That's why the narrow road is the most incredible, most beautiful road you can ever go down. Think about it. Think about it. Jesus talks about a gate. Then he talks about a way. Then he talks about a life. But here's what's crazy about that. In this passage, it almost seems like it's some random gate, some random way, and some random life. But then in another part in Scripture, in the book of John, in John chapter 10, Jesus brings up the concept of the gate. And he tells us, listen, I am the gate. And here's what's crazy about Jesus being the gate. In those days, when you were a shepherd, you didn't have just a place where you kept your sheep. So you would, what you would do at night is you would set up all this wood. You would set up like this, this pen for them, but you would never put a door on the, on the pen. You would sleep, and you would be the door as a shepherd. You would be the gate. 
So, so literally, you would put all the sheep in the pen, and then the shepherd would sit and literally sleep there. So, so what's crazy is that once you were in, you couldn't get out. And no one can get in to get you. You were totally protected because the shepherd was going to protect you. Jesus shows up and says, listen, I'm not talking about some random gate. I'm telling you I am the gate. Then later on, listen to this, in John chapter 14, he not only says he's the gate, but then in John 14, he tells us that he's the way. In that same passage, he then tells us he's the life. So Jesus isn't talking about some random gate and some random way and some random life. Jesus is saying, I am the way, I am the gate, I am the way, and I am the life. And you know what's crazy? In Hebrews chapter 13, it says that Jesus died outside the gate so that we might be brought in the gate. He died outside the gate so that we might be brought inside the gate. Come on. That's what we see. That's the good news of this gospel. And you know what's crazy? And this is something that I heard from another pastor, but I think it's so well said. He said, here's why Christianity is the narrow road. And here's why Christianity is different from any other world religion and any other worldview. In every other world religion and worldview, the gate comes at the end. So, so, so whether, whether you are a, 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 a Catholic or whether you are Muslim or whether you're a Jew or whether you're an agnostic, regardless of where you are, every other world religion, the gate comes at the end. And so you choose a road and you're, there's all this fear and anxiety and you're worried, like, what's going to happen when I get to the gate? Are they going to accept me? Are they going to reject me? What happens if the scales don't measure up? Am I going to be actually let in? So there's this fear and there's anxiety and there's hopelessness. But you know what's beautiful about Jesus? That, that in Christianity, because of what Jesus came to do, because Jesus lived the life you couldn't and died the death that you should have, now in Christianity, the gate comes first. Yeah. And because the gate comes first, here's what this means. The moment I get through that gate, now I've already been accepted. I've already been loved. I've already been adopted. I've already been justified. I've already been forgiven. I've already been brought in. I've already been validated. I've already gotten those things. I can't lose those things. There's no fear. There's no anxiety. There's none of that anymore. All of it is gone because God, when God sees me, he sees Jesus. Come on. That's why Christianity is different. It's not because of the rules. It's because of the Redeemer. And, and, and you go down the broad road and you think, man, there's so much freedom in this. But you know what's crazy? The person who goes down the broad road, they're walking and they're walking and there's so much freedom. But then actually the broad road becomes the narrow road at the end. Because the longer you try to be the, a good spouse and a good parent and a good employee and a good neighbor and a religious person, the longer you walk, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I can't do this. And the, the wide road becomes the narrow road and you get crushed and you get suffocated. And you get to the gate and you realize... I need a savior, and I tried to save myself, and I can't. But when you go to Jesus, the narrow road actually leads to width. The narrow road leads to spaciousness. That's what the gospel tells us. And so listen, this morning, I don't, I don't know where you are. I'm not sure where you are in your journey. I don't know uh, 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 how far along you are in this whole Jesus thing, but here's what I'll tell you. If you haven't made a decision to be on the narrow road, you are on the broad road. And my prayer for you this morning is that this morning, would be the, this morning would be the day that you say, I'm tired of walking on this broad road. I'm tired of saving myself. I'm tired of living for my own glory. I want to make the decision to follow Jesus. I want to make the decision to go through the narrow gate. Jesus here talks about a gate, a way, and a life. 
And what's beautiful about it is if we look at it from this, this concluding angle, we realize that that gate is Jesus, that way is Jesus, and that life Amen. is Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.